Well, do turn in your Bibles, if you will, uh, back to the second of the uh, two readings that Rita read earlier for us, Mark chapter 11 and uh, verses 27 to 33. Page 1017 is the uh, page number in the Church Bibles, uh, 1017. This evening we are beginning our new series from Mark chapter 11 verse 27 through to the end of chapter 12 which we'll look at over these next Sunday evenings. We've called it Questioning Jesus because as I'll show you that's what happens all the way through this section of Mark's Gospel. People come to Jesus asking him questions. Uh, We see it in our section today, chapter 11 verse 28. Here are the religious leaders. They say verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Uh, Look down to chapter 12, verse 14, and you'll see the Pharisees and the Herodians came to Jesus and said, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity, and so on, and they asked about giving taxes to Caesar, should they or shouldn't they? Uh, In chapter 12, verses 19 to 23, it's the Sadducees who ask a question about the resurrection, and over the page in chapter 12, verse 28, uh, a, a lawyer comes to Jesus asking a question. All the way through this section then, people are questioning Jesus. I was uh, playing tennis on on Wednesday evening when I heard a a lad of about 13 or 14 shout, when did you book this court for? I looked up and realised he wasn't talking to me, but to the four adults who were on the court next to me, and one of them replied, I I think we've got it until 8 o'clock. Well, it's gone, 8 when are you going to get off the court, he said. He was so lippy. I, I, I sound like my dad now. You know, I wanted to grab him by the ear and tell him to stand in the corner and get some respect. Slapping about a bit. I know I'm not supposed to do that. I would never do it, of course. <laughs> just how I felt. He was such a cheeky little monkey. Now, by contrast, and this is not normal, but our little girls this week have been marvellous. We had a birthday party for them on Tuesday. I was expecting Bedlam uh, for the birthday party. In fact... I was pleasantly surprised. They're twins and they each invited uh, six friends each. Well, one of them can't count because she invited seven, but there they were. And then their little brother, we had 16 of them running around. But it was great. We played past the parcel at their party and uh, there they were all sitting in a circle, these uh, little seven-year-olds and Joshua, who's four. And the music stopped and one of my little girls and one of her friends both had hold of the parcel. You know how it goes, it goes. I was actually operating the music and looking and making sure that didn't happen and still I couldn't do it. And they both got hold of the parcel and Bethan, my little girl, said, it's okay, Phoebe, you can have it. <laughs> I was expecting at that moment the angels to descend. And not... <laughs> it was a great day. After opening their birthday presents in the morning, one of the girls brought a present to me and said, how does this work, Daddy? It's a great question. I didn't have a clue, but it was a great question. (laughs) Now, you see, those two events have illustrated for me how differently questions can be asked. When did you book this court for? It's gone eight. When are you going to get off the court? It's very different from, how does this work, Daddy? We can ask a question accusingly or genuinely. And that is really true when we come to Jesus. We can either uh, come to him to try and catch him out, which is what we'll see goes on in Mark chapter 11 and 12, or we can come to him and say, how does the world work? Who are you? What is this all about? Indeed, in another part of the Bible, Jesus invites us, even encourages us to ask questions. There's no need to turn it up, but if you want to look at it later, there's a fascinating 
a couple of little parables in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33, where Jesus encourages good questions. He tells these two little stories. He says, before you embark on a building project, you do your sums. You work out to see if you can afford to complete the building. He's just said earlier, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be really tough. So he's saying, work it out whether you're ready to go through with that. He says in that same section, uh, before kings go to war, they consider whether they can win the battle. If they've got 10,000 people behind them, are they going to win the battle? They won't go to war if they know they can't win. Jesus is saying, I think, in these two little parables, ask your questions. Before you start out with me, ask yourself, what will it mean for me to follow Jesus? Am I prepared for that? Oh yeah, Jesus encourages good questions. And look, honestly, we surely have all asked questions whenever we make big decisions in life. On three occasions I've gone through the precarious business of buying property and and each time I've appointed a solicitor and contacted a surveyor uh, to ask the right questions to the prospective property. You know, is it structurally sound? Are there any major developments proposed in the area? Will my self-assembly wardrobes be attacked by ferocious woodworm with ravenous appetites? That sort of thing. Before I got married I asked some serious questions. Do I want to spend the rest of my life with Caroline? Do I want her to be the mother of my children? Does she support Leeds United Football Club? Important questions. (laughs) Actually, she doesn't, but, you know, I wasn't going to miss out on a good chance. Buying property, getting married, taking a job. We ask questions before we make life's big decisions. It's no different with following Jesus. We should ask questions, and amazingly, graciously, Jesus encourages us to do that. Now, if you're here this evening and you're still weighing up the Christian life, I hope that encourages you. Ask your questions. Jesus encourages it. But as we begin this new series tonight, we will see that not all questions are good questions. Indeed, to come to Jesus with the wrong tone, with the sort of tone of an aggressive, lippy teenager who wants to turf people off a tennis court, to come to him with that approach is a very, very dodgy position to be in. And that is exactly what we find in our passage this evening. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 27, as we begin. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, arrived in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Those three groups, chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders, were the religious heavyweights of the day. And they had considerable power. They represented the three components of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body in Jerusalem. For the Jewish nation, the Sanhedrin were much more powerful than, say, the the general synod of the Church of England. They were more like the, the British government and the general synod of the Church of England all rolled into one. Power over the nation and power over the church. And over the next weeks we'll see others with considerable religious clout questioning Jesus. There's one thing about all these questions. None of them were the thoughtful questions of a genuine inquirer. All these questions were asked in order to to catch Jesus out. And over these next weeks, we'll see that approaching Jesus like, like that leads us on a very sticky wicket. Yes, ask your questions genuinely. But let's learn tonight and over these weeks, do not ask your questions of Jesus the way they, they do. Now, you'll see they certainly shouldn't have asked this question the way they did And their question, verse 28, they say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? 
See what they're saying? Jesus, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to do these things? And boy, does that question have bite behind it. Of course, the Bible doesn't tell you what tone of voice they had, but it doesn't need to. When we put this into its context, it's very clear how they asked these questions. You see, this was the morning after the night before, if I can put it that way, and the night before had not been a happy social party, but a theological punch-up. As this question was asked, the temple must have looked as if a bomb had hit it. Jesus had been there the day before, you see, and boy, did he make a mess. Look back at verse 15 of chapter 11. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? Now, can you imagine it? Walking into a religious building and pushing over the font, turning up the communion table, pushing off all the books off the bookstall. Now, no, the temple wasn't a church. It was far more significant than any church building. But still, if we can imagine someone coming in here and doing this to our building, well, then it will help us to feel the sense of outrage that they felt towards Jesus that day. They would have been so incensed. Why did Jesus do it? Well, he was angry with them, the way the temple was being used. But uh, please don't get the wrong end of the stick. See, there's been plenty in the news this week about royalty getting angry. Have you followed the story? The BBC, of course, has had to apologise after portraying the Queen as walking out in anger during a photo shoot with the photographer Annie Leibovitz. Now, if you've followed the story, you'll know it was, in fact, a piece of sloppy editing by the BBC. Either sloppy or imaginative, I don't know. Hence their apology to the palace for misrepresenting the Queen. They sort of put things together just to make it look as if the Queen got up in anger. Now, that ought to warn us of sloppy editing with Mark's Gospel. See, Mark makes it very clear, if we don't edit him, that this is not the king of the universe losing his temper. In fact, Mark brilliantly shows us that Jesus was in complete control when he turned the tables over. This is not a fit of pique. Look back again to now verse 11. See, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here we are. Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he saw all that was going on. He saw the inflated exchange rates at the Bureau de Change, you know, the money changers. He saw the way the dove sellers were asking prices well over the odds. He saw it all. But he didn't fly off the handle. No, he is in complete control. Oh, be sure, he was angry. But he was in control. And Mark makes that clear by telling us, verse 11, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You see, he's got something in mind but he's got it under control. Jesus walked away. And then he came back the next day, verse 12, and the next day, verse 15, then he trashed the temple. Do you see how Mark brilliantly shows us that Jesus didn't lose his temper? And it is important for us to realise that the king of the universe, almighty God, does get angry. It is right 
isn't it, to get angry over things? Don't you get angry when you see injustice in the world? When you see, I saw a terrible news item that really rocked me this week, you know, of little girls and the way they're treated when they're taken back to Africa, they have their, their genitals mutilated. I got so angry at that. It is right to be angry, isn't it? God gets angry, but his anger is always under control. Well, Jesus walked away, and, uh, and then he came back. And, and Mark shows us this. It wasn't a moment of mindless vandalism. This was a controlled and considered act. But to those around the temple, well, of course, this was sacrilege. Have you seen another news item this week? The news of the battle in the Red Mosque in Pakistan. That's hit the headlines. And from the events in Iraq, if you've been following them over these last years, and I'm sure you have, we know how incensed Muslims are when their mosques are attacked. Well, to attack a mosque is to attack their religion. Well, be sure, no matter how the Muslims feel it today, the Jews felt it more when Jesus did this to their temple. For there was only one temple and it represented the very heart of Judaism. So what a moment. And what a provocative act when Jesus did this. And if that wasn't spectacular enough, Jesus went back the next day. See, the next day begins in verse 20, but then look on again to verse 27. Verse 27, later on the next day, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the religious leaders came up to him. Now that really is asking for trouble, isn't it? He's just trashed the temple, he goes away and he comes back the next morning. No doubt they were still clearing up from the night before. The trainees were putting the furniture back. The faithful band of retired ladies who come in every week to clean, the, clean away the service sheets were having to get out the dustpan and brushes and sweep up the mess. I'm sure there would have been the odd pigeon still on the loose, flying around the place, pooing on the pews. And when you think of the mess that a pigeon can make, you just hope there weren't any bulls still on the loose, don't you? But what a mess, all caused by Jesus. And then Jesus walks right back in. No wonder the theological heavyweights came out to tackle Jesus. And verse 28, here's our question. Do you get the tone now? By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? You can hear the tone. Who gave you the right? Jesus, who do you think you are? Quite a question. Of course, it could be a good question. Asked the right way, I want to say it's a really good question. Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Get to the bottom of that question and you get to the bottom of Christianity. Indeed, I want to suggest more. Get to the bottom of that question and you get to the bottom of life itself. Discover who Jesus is and you discover the centre of the universe. So, yes, it's a good question. Who are you, Jesus? But that's not we can see now, can we? That's not how it's being asked here. The religious leaders are not asking who Jesus is, but who does he think he is? Well, at first glance, you may have sympathy with these spiritual heavyweights. After all, what right does Jesus have to come into their temple? Well, again, to understand the issue really well, we must put it into its context. We mustn't do some BBC editing. We're in the middle of Mark's Gospel and in the first ten chapters of this book Jesus has made it abundantly clear who he is. 
Read from chapter 1 and you'll see Jesus says, follow me, and he expects people to leave their jobs with no notice, just to get up and follow him. He speaks a word and demons obey him. He gives the order and people are healed of leprosy and paralysis and sickness and blindness. Just a word of command from him and a storm is stilled and folk are fed. 5,000 given a banquet out of just five loaves and two fish. See, when Jesus arrived on planet Earth, he, he walked around the place as if he owned the place. Who does he think he is? Read Mark's Gospel and clearly he thinks he's God. And clearly his actions back up his claim. All the way through Mark's Gospel, the religious authorities have been looking on. They had all this evidence played out in front of them that Jesus is God but they won't accept it. That's why this question is not a good question from their lips. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to do these things? They ought to know from what he's been doing. And clearly, if, uh, if they'd read the Old Testament carefully, when he turned up the tables in the temple, well then again he was asserting his authority as God. Now look, keep your finger in Mark 11 or, or, your, or your service order and come back with me to the second of those uh, two readings that we had. Jeremiah chapter 11, page 764. Sorry, did I say Jeremiah 11? I mean Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, page 764. See, we'll go to the quote that Jesus quoted while he was in the temple turning up the tables and we'll see what he is claiming for himself while he's doing that. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. I wonder if you noticed it when it was read to us earlier. Page 764, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. There it is, top of the page. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? That's what Jesus quoted, Mark chapter 11, verse 17. That's what he quoted. Now read on. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching. See, we've seen that. The night before. The night before Jesus turned the tables. He was watching. He went into his temple and he watched. And who is it that watches in the temple in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. What does uh, the Lord say in Jeremiah chapter 7 as you read on? He says he promises to go to his temple in judgment. That's the point of verses 12 to 15. Verse 14, therefore what I did to Shiloh I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your, for, for, and your fathers. So you see when Jesus walked into the temple he quoted from Jeremiah chapter 7 from their own scriptures to prove that he was the Lord. But they refused to accept it. This is exactly what we'd expect of the Lord, to come into his temple and to judge it, because that's what it says in Jeremiah 7. So as we turn back to Mark's Gospel, do you see what appears to be a good question is actually a shocking question. It's clear who Jesus is. Here is the Messiah King, and all they can say to him is, what gives you the right? Now surely we know that is no way to speak to the King of the Universe. Yes, Jesus is very patient and 
and very willing to answer the questions of the honest, honest inquirer and the genuine seeker. But it's quite another story when he's confronted by his accusing questioner. And that's why Jesus responds as he does in verse 29. See, they ask in verse 28, who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus replied, verse 29, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. It's a brilliant counterpunch. For if they answered Jesus' question properly and honestly, they would answer their own question in the process. You might say, what did Jesus suddenly start talking about John the Baptist? Well, we'll flip back now to Mark chapter 1. I think this is the last flipping in the pages, but it's well worth turning to. And we'll see at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, page 1002, why Jesus brings John the Baptist into the equation, into the conversation. See, Mark tells us in the opening chapter, in verses 1 to 8, about John the Baptist and who John the Baptist is. And in telling us who John the Baptist is, tells us who Jesus is. Look at verse 2. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. You see, if John was the prophet from God promised here, then Jesus is the Lord. Look at verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. If John the Baptist was the voice of verse 3, then Jesus is the Lord. And John the Baptist knew that. Look what he says down in verse 8. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Who baptises with the Holy Spirit? Who is it who gives the Holy Spirit? Only God can do that. John was very clear. This one is the Lord. This one is God. Now do you see why back in chapter 11 Jesus answers as he does why he brings John the Baptist into the equation. Jesus said, verse 30, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, well they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. At uh, theological college, there was a snooker table in the common room. And uh, maybe if I'd, yeah, you know, spent more time studying, I would be better at these things than I am. But I enjoyed playing. I was pretty hopeless, never any good at it. In fact, just to pot one ball was an achievement for me. Uh, having uh, played a little then, only a little, you understand, and seen how difficult it is to pot a ball, I so appreciate the skill of the professionals who not only pot a ball, but who can leave the cue ball in the right place to pot the next ball and the one after it. Indeed, when you watch it on television, the television commentators tell me that every, uh, every professional snooker player is planning three or four shots ahead. They're not only playing to hit that ball and to hit the next one, but they know where they've got to be in about four or five shots' time. Well, look, following Jesus' question in verse 30, the religious leaders are thinking three shots ahead in verses 31 and 32. If we answer this way, then... Uh, and if we say that, then... See, they're thinking three shots ahead. But sadly for them, whichever answer they give, they're snookered. <laughs> See, Jesus asked them, verse 30, John's baptism, was it from heaven 
or from men? Tell me. If they say, verse 31, and admit from heaven, verse 31, and admit that John was a messenger from God, then Jesus will say, then why won't you accept John's words about me, that I am the Lord? And then, why won't you accept that I have every right to walk into the temple, into my temple, and turn over the tables? And I have every right to tell you that your religion is shambolic and that you need to sort it out. Why will you not accept that? And if the answer to Jesus' question is that John's baptism is from men, verse 32, well then they knew that the populace wouldn't take kindly to that. And because they feared the people, verse 32, they were snookered. And so, verse 33, they answered, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, do you see the problem? These leaders won't be honest. You can see that from Jesus' words, can't you? Jesus' answer in verse 33 assumes that their reply was not we don't know, but we won't tell you because Jesus said, verse 33, neither will I tell you. They won't be honest with Jesus. They won't be honest with the people around them and they won't be honest with themselves. And so they end up in a bigger mess than the temple was. Now I don't know where you are at with Jesus. If you're an unbeliever and you've come along to ask questions, that's great. They're genuine questions, ask away. Maybe you're a Christian and you're asking some questions of Jesus. How are you asking them? Are we going to ask them honestly? Look, wouldn't it be better to know if we're in a mess with God than to try and save face? Which is what these people are doing. See, as we've seen, Jesus is not against honest inquiry. He, he positively encourages it. But he knows that not everyone who asks a question wants the truth. Will you be honest with yourself, Christian or unbeliever, when you're asking Jesus questions about how you should live? Will you be honest? Listen to the words of Josh McDowell asking the question, who is Jesus? Josh McDowell writes this, the evidence is clearly in favour of Jesus as Lord. However, some people reject the clear evidence because of moral implications involved. There needs to be a moral honesty in the consideration of Jesus. Do you see what's, what, uh, what McDowell is saying? He's saying, if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian... Will you have a moral honesty about why you're not a Christian? If you're asking questions, and they're genuine questions, fine, but if you're asking questions just as a smokescreen, because actually you don't want to turn to Jesus because there's a moral issue that you know he's going to ask you to change, will you just front up and face up to that? When I was working in the newspaper business, I had a colleague and a friend called Steve. I was his best man, that's how good a friend we were. He asked me tons of questions about Jesus. Now, I, I knew he was uh, convinced of, of many of the answers because uh, one day I walked back into the office and found him trying to convince someone else that Jesus was God. It was amazing. But Steve never became a Christian, never. Though he continued to ask me lots of questions. But you see, for him, it wasn't an intellectual issue that stopped Steve from becoming a Christian. There were plenty of answers. He had plenty of answers. For him, it was a moral dilemma. He knew that Jesus would not approve of something he was doing in his life, which I knew about as well, which was a pretty big thing. And he wasn't prepared to change it. See, he hid behind unanswered questions. 
The truth was he didn't want to change his lifestyle. There needs to be a moral honesty. Isn't that what's going on here? These people have all the evidence they need. These religious leaders had all the evidence they need to know who Jesus is. Their question's not a genuine one. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? They know that. They've had all the answers. They don't want to know the answer because they don't want to change their lifestyle. They like their religion and they don't like Jesus, well, butting in. I find it when people ask me questions. You know, often when people ask me questions, I try to make an attempt to answer their question and then I'll say, will you read this? This will help you. Read more on the subject. When they don't do the reading, I know that they're not that bothered about the question. The question's just a smokescreen. They can't even be bothered to read a, a, a well-written paperback on the issue. Well, they don't really want to know the answer, do they? They keep coming up with the questions, but I know they're not genuine. Look, it can be the same with church people. For these religious leaders, they didn't want to find out the answer to their question. They wanted to find a way to get rid of Jesus. Mark tells us that in verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. See, that was the truth. They didn't want Jesus meddling in their religion. Religious people love religion. And Jesus got in their way. Sadly, over the years, I've met churchgoers who've who've come to talk to me about, about what the Bible says on an issue. And if I don't say what they want to say, if, as I turn up the Bible, they hear something different from what they want to hear, I find them going around to other Christians to get a different answer. And some of them will travel a long, long way until they find the answer they want. Very often it's over relationship issues. People have come to me to ask me to tell them that it's okay for them to marry an unbeliever. And when I turn up the Bible, they get angry and they go away and they go and try and find someone who will tell them that. People hunt around to find a Christian who will give them freedom to end a marriage. I've been praying about this for a long time and I feel I've got a sense of peace about it, they say. They use religious language when the Bible is very clear on their issue. They don't want the answer. They haven't asked the question genuinely. Well, look, this passage warns us of the danger of rejecting the clear teaching of the Bible because we don't like the answer. Look again at the last verse and the devastating consequences of not being honest with Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Do you see the point? If we won't be honest with Jesus, it may be that he won't answer our questions. Let's pray. Well, in just a moment, uh, Andrew Reese is going to lead us in our prayers of intercession. But before we uh, turn to those, let's have a moment of silence, making our own response. Perhaps you're here thinking, I've asked questions and I don't get answers. Well, maybe this passage is saying, how genuinely are you asking the questions? Or if you are asking Jesus questions, then this passage says, can you live with the answers? And maybe some of us here need to ask forgiveness for having asked the questions and then ignored the clear teaching of the Bible. 
Well, a moment of silence as we make our response and then Andrew will lead us in prayer.